The law makes heroin, cocaine, and meth illegal according to their defined chemical structures. But what about drugs made from synthetic compounds, which can be changed with a tiny tweak in a clandestine lab? Can the law just say close enough? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. To support the show and unlock extra content and more exclusive benefits, become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal guide and extreme criminal justice nerd here to show you through our confusing and often dysfunctional criminal justice system. Also know how flippin' sweet it is to have that day job still as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. What comes to mind when I say the words illegal drugs? Chances are you think of the usual suspects, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, maybe in your state you still include marijuana. With all of these, except weed, maybe in those 10 states in D.C. that have legalized it, with all of these, the law prohibits them by reference to their chemical makeup. Cocaine, for example, is a particular molecule derived from the coca plant. Heroin is a molecule derived from the opium poppy. In fact, in order to prove in court that someone possessed an illegal drug, the defendant can insist on chemical testing of the plant material or the powder that's been seized so that the government actually has to prove the substance is the prohibited item. If the seized item does not test as, say, cocaine, but as, say, baby powder or ground-up drywall or baking soda, the case for possession of cocaine will fail. Still possible to have a case for possession of a fake drug with the intent to sell it as a real one, but that would require a different law, different case, different charges. So what do we do with this stuff called spice or K2, or fake weed, seen in recent years in convenience stores, tobacco shops, and so-called glass shops that sell water pipes. This stuff isn't a defined prohibited substance with a specifically described chemical structure. Instead, it's a chemical compound designed in some lab somewhere, which is then sprayed on some random dried plant matter to produce a high when ingested usually through smoking it. Each batch may be chemically different, either just subtly different or a lot different, making it difficult, if not impossible, to regulate through the regular process of lawmaking. And yet, this stuff can be deadly. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, warns that these chemicals, quote, can cause severe illness and even death. In April of 2018, CNN reported that these substances caused two deaths and more than 50 hospitalizations in Chicago and central Illinois. Symptoms included coughing up blood, blood in the urine, bleeding from the nose and the gums. Public health authorities in the state said the substance contained rat poison. I'll get you high. In June of 2018, more than 300 people overdosed on a similar synthetic in D.C., in New Haven, Connecticut, more than 70 people overdosed in one morning in August of 2018, all staggering onto the historic famed New Haven Green in the center of town after using a store-bought, widely available product called K2. Here's some audio about that event in New Haven from a CBS News report. Dozens of overdoses, in fact, in this park. And just walking around this morning, we can still see tire tracks where multiple emergency vehicles came together to try to save lives. Fortunately, this morning, everybody but one individual uh, we uh, here are out of the hospital. So the crisis seems to have passed, but it continues in the sense that there are major gaps and loopholes in the policing and the laws against K2 synthetic marijuana. It is, in some jurisdictions, not even illegal to sell it. So this stuff is dangerous. It sickens people and even kills some of them. This kind of danger to public health requires a response. But the problem, from a lawmaking point of view, is that as soon as you outlaw one chemical structure, 
these Walter White wannabes making this stuff in some hidden lab somewhere. They change it just enough to be outside that now prohibited chemical structure and thus outside the new law. They go on to some other chemical combination that gets people high, even if it gets a lot of them sick or even kills some of them. And that leaves regulators and lawmakers in a kind of whack-a-mole position. You hit one and three others pop up. So the federal government has taken uh, a, a different and unusual tack. They added a provision to the Controlled Substances Act that prohibits anything, quote, substantially similar to existing prohibited substances. It's called the Controlled Substances Chemical Analog Act. That is 21 United States Code Section 80232A for you hyper nerds out there. And it reads in pertinent part, the term controlled substance analog means a substance, the chemical structure of which is substantially similar to the chemical structure of a controlled substance in Schedule 1 or 2. Now, there's more to the law than that, but that's the meat of it. Any person charged must intend for it to have the same kind of effect a controlled substance would have, and it must, in fact, have that effect. Now, you'd think that this might take care of the whack-a-mole problem but it raises a problem of its own. What is substantially similar? Who gets to say? Now, presumably, that would be professional chemists, chemists in the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. But what if chemists don't agree? In fact, what if the DEA's chemists don't agree? What you have then, on the other side from the public health crisis, is a legal crisis. We can't charge people with crimes if they can't have known that the conduct they were engaged in was illegal in the first place. It's a basic due process principle, and it applies, I'm afraid, even to folks who might be trying to skirt the law to no good end, to go up to the line but not cross it. And that brings us to a fascinating and confounding story that recently ran on Bloomberg Law. It's the story of two men who got into the business of producing spice, distributing it, thinking that they said it wasn't illegal, but who are now paying a huge price for what they did. Our guest today reported that story. Jordan Rubin is a legal editor at Bloomberg Law. His beat is the United States Supreme Court, and he also covers the full waterfront of the criminal law area. He's also a podcaster. He co-hosts the Supreme Court podcast called Cases and Controversies. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Prior to his journalism work, Jordan spent five years as a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in the Office of Special Narcotics Prosecutor. He did trials and investigations. His two-part series on Bloomberg Law, America's Secret Drug War, appeared on Bloomberg Law in August of 2019. We'll put a link up to that, too, of course. Jordan Rubin, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thanks for having me, David. Appreciate it. Sure. Let's start with these two guys that you write about, Charles Burton Ritchie and Benjamin Galecki. Ritchie is a real character. He starts marketing T-shirts. He's got head shops, stuff going. Uh, he expands into other things. He follows the Grateful Dead and selling, he says, anything that was legal. And eventually he partners up with his fellow Benjamin Galecki. They even get to producing movies, some we've heard of. Now, in 2008, though, he starts selling this stuff called Spice and eventually transitions into manufacturing it. Tell us how and why Richie and Galecki began to sell and then manufacture and distribute spice? Well, the why of it, I think, is a simple question. Richie is a self-described serial entrepreneur, and this was yet another way to make money, and, and a lot of it is that. And so that's the why. The how of it is actually quite simple, too. It's a matter of importing these substances, these synthetic cannabinoids, usually from a place like China, and applying it to a plant leaf. You don't need any sort of chemical or scientific background to do that. And so the how is sort of simple as well. But as we're going to see in this discussion, their story itself and how it unfolded is not a simple one. That's right. You said um, they start out doing this. It's a, per it's a pretty simple process at, at uh, 
at its base. They start out in Florida, and then they move to Vegas, and that's when they really kind of go big time with this. Right. They were pulling in millions of dollars, millions, distributing nationally, and cases all over the country uh, sparked because of their distribution, not just in prosecutions against them, but in prosecutions against more local retailers. They really had a huge effect on this spice market. Let's be very specific. I mean, I, I bet a lot of our listeners have probably even seen this stuff. You go into a convenience store or a tobacco shop or whatever you want to call these places, and it's in little foil packets. At least it was. I don't know if it's still there. And it goes by various names, Spice or K2 or uh, I saw one, Mr. Mojo, all kinds of other things like that. What other, what other things can you tell us about it as far as what we would recognize? Right. So it's marketed under sort of these catchy, snappy, comic look, comic book-like brand names that had names like Avalanche and Bizarro and things of that nature. And so these little colorful packets that you might see, and you can find them in head shops or over the internet, as all other industries have moved to the internet as well, especially ones related to any sort of counterculture. Sure. And these are substances that are not really difficult to, to get your hands on, but they're operating in this sort of murky gray area of the law, which puts both sellers and potential users in sort of a bind and a tricky situation in terms of kind of what to do with these substances and how to get them and whether they're legal or not. You know, I didn't even think to ask this, but what does a package of this stuff cost? So the... The prices really can vary. The the government in making their argument, what they'll what they'll say in terms of the price, because it'll be marketed, and this goes to kind of a general point of the the industry, is that they'll label it as something like incense or potpourri, even though people could buy actual incense or potpourri elsewhere. And what the government will point to is the fact that these are marked up exponentially from an actual packet of incense or potpourri as indicating or proving from the government's point of view that this stuff is is actually illegal. So the price of it, even if it's not incredibly expensive, the fact that it's costing more than something that it's outwardly advertised as that you could get elsewhere is something that the government shows that this is something that's shady and therefore illegal in the government's view. Yeah, I, 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 I did see that. They, uh, they market it as botanical incense or something. They also put on their not for human consumption, for right. freshening of air, or whatever the heck it is. Did these guys know that people used it? Did they know it got people high? Did they know about the health effects? Is there any evidence about that? There is, and I think even before getting to specific evidence, it's hard to say with a straight face that anyone who's involved in this industry or even has casual knowledge of it can say that this stuff is not intended to be smoked and to get people high. Again, this is an industry, and, and like others, it has sort of these loopholes that companies have, these things that they do because their lawyers tell them to, right? And so this just happens to be in a type of industry that's very much in the countercultural countercultural realm. And so the government did amass certain evidence, nothing that's really totally direct, but as the government often does in a circumstantial case, they'll find things like, for example, when their company was selling these products and trying to market them to individual retailers across the country, they had a script. And for example, the term spice, the word spice was crossed out on a script. And so the government was pointing to that as an example of saying, hey, these guys knew that using the term spice was something that denoted some sort of potentially illegal substance, and so therefore that's one bit of circumstantial evidence going uh. to show that they knew that this was actually a product that's used to get people high. But I would say really even just from a common sense standpoint, it's tough to argue that people don't know that this is something that gets people high, particularly people who are distributing it. But really the bigger issue is not so much what people are doing with the stuff, but whether the stuff itself is illegal, and that's where it really gets interesting. Absolutely. So uh, their career on as uh, merchants of spice, let's just leave it at that, it takes off. They're making millions, as you say. They've moved to Vegas, where it's actually easier to produce the stuff because it dries more quickly on the plant material. Right. And I think it's, what, 2012, a whole bunch of people involved in the spice market, let's just call it that, are raided, including their operation in Vegas. What happens then? 
Right. So 2012, there was an operation called Operation Logjam. It was this nationwide synthetic enforcement effort because there had been a lot of problems, including similar to ones that you noted earlier in the show. There have been calls, increased calls to poison control, and emergency rooms are being overwhelmed. And so the government does this nationwide coordinated takedown where they're taking down 100 dealers, they're taking down manufacturing facilities, they're seizing kilos and kilos of raw synthetic cannabinoids, the stuff that's used to make spice and individual packets ready for sale as well. And one of these places that the government took down in the Operation Logjam was Richie and Galecki's Vegas warehouse that they were using to manufacture spice at the time. And so that's sort of the beginning of the end of their spice empire. And at the beginning of the end, um, uh, Mr. Ritchie is a little puzzled, I think, because he doesn't understand. He doesn't think what he's done, the substance that he sells, is actually illegal. So he takes an action that, honestly, I've never heard of or seen in the context of any drug case. Talk about that. Right. So if you're a drug dealer, normally something that that's not at the top of your list is calling the police on yourself, right? But in this case, we have something that's pretty much exactly that. So after the logjam raid, what Richie does is he gets in touch with a friend of his from back home in the Panhandle, who he knew from in growing Florida. up. Exactly. Uh, and this is where their, their facility, their business itself was based in Florida, in, Pensac- in Pensacola, in that area. So after the logjam raid in Vegas... Richie's freaking out, and he, through a friend of his that he knew from home who was in law enforcement, he wound up, Richie wound up getting in touch with a DEA agent named Claude Cozy, who worked in Florida, who was sort of assigned to that region where their spice empire was based in Florida. And so Claude Cozy agreed to come out and inspect their Florida facility. They met with Richie. They had coffee. Richie gave him a tour of their Florida facility. He gave him samples and lab reports. And I'll pause on the lab reports part because an interesting part of their business, and this is something that is not just unique to them, but in businesses like theirs across the country, when they would get these bulk shipments of synthetic cannabinoids from China, they would quarantine them and have them tested for potential controlled substances and spending thousands and thousands and possibly even up to a million dollars testing these substances for potential controlled substances. And that's in what they say is an effort to comply with the law. And so I mentioned that just as what the defendants would point to as yet another example of them trying to live within the law. And so Richie is giving the agent Claude Cozy, their lab reports, their samples of their product, and Richie says to the DE agent Cozy, hey, if you tell me this stuff is illegal, we'll shut down the business today. And so, you know, Claude Cozy, he doesn't, you know, sign a get-out-of-jail-free card and hand it to Richie, but what he says is, look, the laws are changing. I can't tell you that what you're doing now is illegal, but, uh, you know, the bottom line there is that Richie, is that the, the bottom line there is that the DEA agent Cozy did not arrest them that day, and they were actually never prosecuted in Florida at all. And so after that, Richie and Galecki, from their point of view, they thought they were in the clear at that point, at least when it comes to criminal prosecution. Now, that is a wild description. (laughs) You've given a very—let me say that again. You've given a very calm description of something that, that is just almost off the charts— after it's a raid, it is yeah. difficult to believe. I mean, after the raid, this guy, Richie, who's been manufacturing and distributing spice, he looks up a DEA agent, goes to him, gives him product samples, gives him lab reports, and gives him a tour of the facility. And yeah. and, and, and nothing happens, essentially. And the guy says to him, look, I'm not shutting you down. And they go about their business. Right. And so, nonetheless, even though they weren't arrested there because of what they cited as the stress of everything, they then, not long after that interaction and that raid that was in the summer of 2012, they wound up getting out of the business, transferring it in a sale to another person, which was its own fraught business, which is its own 
story in its own right. But to make a long story short, by 2013, they're out of the business and they're concentrating on what Richie says is sort of his main goal all along, which is filmmaking. And Richie moves out to Park City, Utah, home of the Sundance Film Festival, and is living a, a totally different life than from the spice business. And he makes, there are actually movies that he makes, right? I mean, would we have heard of any of these? Yeah, um, I think may, I think the answer is maybe. So th- they were working with, you know, real celebrities there, because Richie, on top of everything, was a big poker player. And he had played at the World Series of Poker. And, you know, a lot of celebrities, they'll, they fancy themselves as good poker players as well. And, and sometimes that's true. And so Richie sometimes met celebrities. that's true, yes. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, no, some of them, some of them are uh, quite good. But, for example, Kevin Pollack is somewhat of a notable celebrity poker player. And Richie met him through playing poker and also met Jason Alexander, George Costanza from Seinfeld. And they're all working together in this film production company, Richie Galecki and these celebrities. And they had a movie called Lowdown from 2014, which I think won some kind of award. And that was a description of a famous uh, jazz pianist, Joe Albany. Uh-huh. Very, the company, their company, which is called Heretic, uh, Heretic Films, they also produced Kevin Pollack's directorial debut called Misery Loves Comedy. I think that came out in 2015. So they produced movies that, you know, you know, these were real movies. You know, it's not, you yes. know, these aren't in the, in the Marvel universe or anything like that, but these were, you know, real movie producers who knew what they were doing. Uh-huh. But then life takes a turn. They're charged with crimes. What happened? Right. So this is in 2015, years after the logjam raid and the meeting with Agent Cozy in Florida in 2012. They're arrested in three different federal districts, not Florida. I should say they're indicted uh, in three federal districts. They're arrested, too, uh, in Virginia, in Nevada, and Alabama. So they're, one of the places they shipped product to was Virginia, And so they were charged there in the Eastern District of Virginia, which is somewhat of a notoriously hard-charging district. Rocket docket. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. so there are a lot of places they possibly could have been indicted. That that was really the first place that they were tried. And they were also prosecuted in Nevada. And we know that that makes sense from the government's point of view anyway. where the warehouse was there. Exactly. And and then the Alabama charges, those are sort of... uh, those are kind of off to the side in a way. They haven't been tried there yet. Their calling facility was moved there at some point of their company, and they allege certain mail fraud and crimes like that there. But sort of the main charges anyway have come up so far through Virginia and Nevada, and those are the places that they've been tried already three times so far. Yeah, and they were charged under that analog law that I talked about in the introduction under which the substance must be, quote, substantially similar to an existing controlled substance. Let's take a quick break here. We're on with Jordan Rubin of Bloomberg Law, and we're talking about his two-part story, America's Secret Drug War. Uh, It's a story about the spice trade, the kind you buy in a head shop or a convenience store. This is Criminal Injustice. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Eyewitness testimony, confessions, fingerprints, and forensics, all tools police and prosecutors rely on to put people in jail. But research shows these methods are far less reliable than you might think. David Harris's 2012 book, Failed Evidence, explores the myths and misconceptions around high-tech policing and explains why they persist. To celebrate our Patreon launch, we're giving away 100 signed copies of Failed Evidence to our first 100 members at the $5 level. Claim yours now and get access to more content on the members feed at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Hi, David Harris with you here on Criminal Injustice, and my guest is Jordan Rubin. He's a legal editor at Bloomberg Law, and we're talking about his two-part series, America's Secret Drug War. This is about the synthetic drug trade, Spice K2 and the like, and we've been talking about the incredible events uh, in the prosecution 
of Richie and Galecki. Those are the two defendants. Uh, And when we were just talking before the break, they had just been indicted in three different federal districts, tried three times under the analog law in the federal code, which says that you can be charged with drug trafficking for trafficking in a substance that is, quote, substantially similar to any controlled substance that's already controlled, already on the books. So how is it determined, Jordan, whether something is substantially similar or not? So it's ultimately determined by a jury that could have no scientific expertise whatsoever. That's who decides in the end whether the government has proved its case that a substance, an alleged substance, is in fact substantially similar to a controlled substance. I guess what I'm but, wondering, though, is is how the government makes that determination in order to lay down the charges in the first place. Right. So I, I, I skip to the end. Where, where it really gets interesting is in the beginning, how charges get brought in the first place, like you say. And so that happens within the DEA. And there are chemists within the DEA who are identifying new substances that come up, this whack-a-mole phenomenon that you referred to earlier. And so it's an internal deliberation within the DEA. They'll compare these molecules to existing controlled substances and make an internal determination that they're willing to, as they would put it, support a prosecution and give expert testimony to the government in order to support analog charges against defendants. So the DEA's own chemists decide whether they think it is, quote, substantially similar enough to go ahead and testify in a prosecution. They may say yes, they may say no. And it turns out that there are competing groups within the DEA making these kinds of determinations. Tell us about those competing units and particularly a man named Arthur Barrier. I hope I'm saying his name right. Yes, sure. So within the DEA, there's the Office of Forensic Sciences and the Office of Diversion Control. So forensic science has labs across the country, regional labs, and say if there's some kind of heroin bust on the streets somewhere in Texas, if the DEA seizes heroin, that's where it'll get sent to be tested at one of their regional labs. Forensic science also has a specialized lab in the Virginia area outside of D.C. where they're testing and identifying new compounds and controlled substances, potential synthetics to be prosecuted under the Analog Act. And so those are kind of the the real scientists who are in the lab with beakers and all of that, testing these new substances, identifying them, making standards to test against. At the same time within the DEA, there's this Office of Diversion Control, as I mentioned, which in some ways is more of the the policy arm. And so the way the DEA has set it up anyway is that it's the Office of Diversion Control that has the ultimate authority within the DEA to deem something an analog, to say that they consider it, to say that they consider it substantially similar to a controlled substance. But when Diversion Control does their analysis, at least for a time what they were doing is they were sending these monographs of theirs, which would basically make the case for why they think this potential analog is, a, is analogous to a controlled substance. A piece of and writing describing it, kind of a report. Exactly. Sort of, it's basically it's, it's scientific argument that lays out why the DEA, why this diversion control unit thinks that the government should, or could anyway, prosecute this new synthetic substance as a controlled substance under the Analog Act. And so those monographs would get sent to forensic science for review, and it would go to this specialized lab, specifically to the man you mentioned, Arthur Barrier. He was a senior DEA chemist for the Office of Forensic Sciences. Um, I really can't stress enough how much he was really on the front lines of this synthetic issue. He came to the DEA in the mid-2000s just as this, the latest synthetic uh, spice craze was starting to heat up, and he was really fascinated with this subject. He had a PhD in organic chemistry from USC. Uh, He really was interested in this subject area, and he was the one who was really pushing internally to get a specialized unit, an emerging drugs unit, to identify these new controlled substances as they were coming up. He's a person who actually got the DEA to start buying spice undercover to see what it was made of. And so he was really a person who was ahead of the curve and on the front lines from a scientific perspective, 
within the DEA at looking at these substances. And so, so he was, let's just emphasize that point, a barrier was out front against uh, uh, urging the DEA to take action against these sort of substances almost before others. Yeah, I think that's accurate, very much so. He was the one who went to the head of his specialized lab and said, hey, we need a specialized unit to deal with all these new substances that are coming in. So he was very much a driving force of that, yes. So he's sort of the in-house guy on this stuff, and then he's asked to uh, to take the position to whether he'll testify, that's a better way to put it, that certain varieties of chemicals that diversion control is bringing in, that these are substantially similar. And with some of them, he doesn't agree, right? Right. So, you know, our, this guy, Arthur Barrier, he's no, uh, he's not a sort of defense true believer type of person. He wasn't looking to help out defendants in any way. And he actually agreed with the conclusions of diversion control for the most part. But there were some substances where Arthur Barrier would review diversion control's monographs, and he would say, I just don't think this is substantially similar enough. And it just so happened that these disagreements came in some substances that became particularly important for the government in analog prosecution. So you can see why this became a problem for the government and something that the DEA would not want getting out into the public, because then that's something that would put a, a hitch into these analog prosecutions. Absolutely. So the government doesn't want that known. And uh, so this internal argument kind of persists between Barrier and other people in the DEA. There's some tension, I read, as, uh, as part of your piece. Uh, you, were, you portrayed that, I think, uh, really well. And these trials of various people uh, other than uh, Richie and Galecki go ahead, uh, and sometimes Barrier surfaces in one or another of these. Tell us about the trial that involved Attorney uh, uh, Hawkins uh, that you mentioned in your article. What is her name, Cynthia Hawkins? Yes, yeah, Cynthia Hawkins. And so she had the first, or at least one of the first, cases that was indicted out of the logjam raid, the nationwide enforcement effort in 2012. And she had a client named Fadida. And she, along with another attorney named Jim Fellman, and Jim Fellman is really the attorney who's leading the charge against the analog law now. To make a long story short, they got a judge to hold a hearing on issues surrounding this analog law. And this was in 2012, later in 2012, after the logjam raid. And by looking at a transcript of this hearing from 2012, it really is almost a roast of the analog law by independent chemists and scientists saying, we can't make heads or tails with this. This is not a scientific endeavor. It was really just the DEA and their expert, an expert from diversion control, who was kind of really trying to drive the point home for the government. But the outside independent chemists were really critical, not just of the DEA chemists' particular analysis, diversion controls analysis, but also really of the, the analog law itself, one of the more noteworthy experts who testified in that hearing in 2012 in this Fadita case uh, was a guy named Paul Doring, and he's a pharmacy professor in Florida. And he is noteworthy because, again, this is someone who is not a defense true believer type. He had actually just testified for the government that morning in another case in another part of the state, and he came to testify in this case for the attorneys Hawkins and Fellman. And so this hearing, uh, one of the things that it featured, again, as I'm trying to get to, is that there are these issues with this analog law, at least from the scientific community, certainly from the defense community as well. And another thing that wound up trickling out in the discovery of this case was that there was this dissenting view from Arthur Barrier as to one of these substances involving spice, synthetic cannabinoids. Uh, the government did not turn that over at first, and that became an issue that, to this day, the lawyer Cynthia Hawkins, uh, in her words, is still pissed about, as she told me for this piece. And it's an issue that she was surprised that she tells it to me that once Barrier's dissenting view came out that the government didn't just dismiss all of these analog cases that involved him. What she says, though, is the reason they didn't do that is because there's so much money in forfeiture in these cases that the government would have had to give all the money back. And so she thinks that's actually a, a real driving force behind these analog prosecutions is that 
you have these businesses like Richie and Galecki's that are making millions of dollars. They have assets, and it's sort of, in some ways, from an asset forfeiture standpoint, low-hanging fruit for the government to take, although the prosecutions themselves are quite difficult to carry out from a government perspective as well. So this is this really brings us full circle. You've got dissent within the DEA and dissent within pharmacy and chemistry and everything else with all kinds of experts as to whether it's even possible to make this judgment of substantially similar. And yet the government is going ahead with these prosecutions under that law, seizing money in the bargain, and even sometimes hiding the evidence of the dissenting opinion from within the DEA. And that exposes sort of the central legal conundrum. We've got public health on one side, clearly, and the other is the idea that you must be able to, to defend yourself. You cannot have a law for prosecution of people that is unclear, so people don't know what's legal and what's not. Exactly. And so, like you're saying, there's the legal component, which is defendants say the law itself is vague enough as it is. And then you have these factual components that emerge with someone like Arthur Barrier's dissenting view and say, hey, you guys can't even get your stuff together within your own shop. You know, how are we supposed to know what's illegal? If the DEA itself can't even agree. And so they look at that and say, hey, you know, these prosecutions are really, you know, a raw deal from their view. And at the very least, they would want to be able to call someone like Arthur Barrier to the stand in their defense. And that brings up yet another wild chapter in this story of trying to get Arthur Barrier on the stand and what happens to him. Right, because <laughs> as they say in those late-night commercials, wait, there's more. Now, nobody, exactly. nobody is saying here that Richie and Galecki are good guys or that they did something good. Uh, they were selling something that was making people sick. Uh, and chances are, as we were saying earlier, they, they just couldn't have not known that. Um, but there's this basic issue of fairness, and it applies to good people and bad people alike. Now we've got Barrier. He's central to all of this, and it comes time for uh, the trials of Richie and Galecki. And in the Virginia case, the judge does not allow Barrier to testify. And even though they're convicted in Virginia, the appeals court reverses it for that reason, doesn't it? Exactly. And another thing about those Virginia trials is The reason that there were two of them is that at the first one in 2016, the jurors could not even agree on this analog issue. They they couldn't agree on the substantial similarity question. And so from the defendant's view, that's just yet another example of showing why this law is is problematic. And the jurors struggled on the second trial, too, in 2017, but ultimately they did return guilty verdicts uh, against the defendants there. And again, this was without the testimony of Arthur Barrier. And so... On appeal, the defendants are saying, hey, if we had been able to call Barrier, if we had this government witness who wasn't a hired gun, then, you know, how could a jury disagree with our argument from the defense view if the government can't even agree on what's illegal? That's the defendant's argument anyway. Absolutely. So the uh, the case is reversed by the Fourth Circuit. But in the meantime, the trial in Vegas goes ahead and there, Arthur Barrier is going to testify for the defendants, but something has happened with Arthur Barrier that has nothing to do with anything we've talked about so far. Right. Uh, but wait, there's more, as you say. That's and right. So, <laughs> the, so Richie and Galecki are tried in 2016 in Virginia. They're tried in 2017 in Virginia and convicted. And this is in the winter of 2017, because the timing is important here. So in the summer of 2017, uh, Arthur Barrier is arrested in a totally different type of law enforcement takedown. And this is one that's looking at people who are trying to solicit minors online for sex. And so this is yet another really wild twist in this story. And now you have this person who was this sterling government witness, but now has this sort of aspect of his character that the government can try to impeach at trial. And Barrier was convicted earlier this year related to that charge. And so now 
in this Las Vegas trial that just wrapped up before the 4th of July. The defendants did get to call Barrier to the stand. Richie and Galecki got him on the stand at their trial, but they were still convicted there anyway. The jury in Las Vegas did hear that Barrier did have this felony conviction. So the jury, being a black box, we don't know if perhaps if Barrier didn't have this conviction attached to him, maybe the defendants would be in a different position now. So this is yet another sort of crazy twist in these analog prosecutions. Incredible. Just incredible. The jury isn't told what Barrier's felony conviction is for, but they are told that he's a convicted felon, certainly damaging his credibility. Now, with all of this, you've reported this case very deeply. I really do recommend people go and read your pieces. Um, what do you think should happen if the if the answer to these synthetic drug uh, uh, problems isn't the substantially similar analog law? Is there another approach that would make more sense? It's difficult to see a middle ground approach here. The defendants aren't offering one. They're saying this law just needs to be stricken down. The government, for their part, they actually say that this law is too burdensome. Really, both sides agree that this law is problematic. Uh, the government says this law is too challenging. Right, they for would different reasons, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, you know, it's possible that it could be like democracy, that it's the worst option except for all the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from striking it down, I have not seen any way in my research for this sort of a middle ground approach. And it's tough to think of one, right? Because you have these substances that are always changing. And, and not just for this spice stuff, really, one of the biggest issues that is being looked at under this law now is fentanyl and fentanyl analogs and stuff that's really even right. much much more deadly. And so that's one thing that this law is being used to go after as well. And so if there's a middle ground approach, I haven't seen it. Of course, I'm not weighing in on which which poll to go to, but I've looked uh, to see if anyone has sort of a recommendation. And the only recommendations I've seen are from the polar opposites of both sides. So this is a case where it's a complicated issue with no good answer that I've seen. As I read about this through your pieces, I thought, well, why not prosecutions under strengthened versions of pure food and drug laws? You're making something that is intended for human consumption. I don't care if you put not for human consumption on the package. We know why you're making millions of dollars, and it isn't for selling incense. Uh, You're making that. It's making people sick. It's on you if you make people sick and they die. Um, Almost reverting to the early years of pure food and drug law at the turn of the 20th century, Um, and you simply make the penalties very severe. I wonder if that would have any promise. Right. You're thinking of almost like a strict liability type of thing. Exactly. doesn't matter. You know, you can you can print anything you want on those packages. Uh, We you know, it's obvious or the jury can be told uh, that this is, you know, from certain points of view, obviously intended for human consumption and it sickens people. Yeah, you know, that is an interesting point, and it, and it really raises sort of a, a related one that I want to emphasize here, because there could be some defendants, I think, who would want to take you up on that, surprising it as it is to say, as opposed to the current regime, and here's why. Uh, in my research for this, you know, you hear that these things are causing people to die and all of these people out in the streets, and they're causing havoc and things like that. But the data on deaths that are directly attributable to something like spice, for example, I found that it's difficult to come across because what I've seen are data that, for example, will account for people who took multiple substances. And so what defendants like Richie and Galecki would say, I think, is that there isn't really this direct proof and that there's almost this sort of hysteria as to this stuff. Uh, Again, there are two opposite poles here, and so the truth might be somewhere in the middle. But there is this whole other element to this of it being difficult to isolate the harm, specifically as to deaths, because these guys have been sued in wrongful death suits where there have just been allegations, but there seem to be issues of causation here because there are other things that happen, especially when you're smoking a substance that perhaps makes you do something really crazy. And in one case where someone drowns in a lake or winds up getting tased by the police or things like that. And so as sort of wild as it is to say, some defendants, I think, might actually prefer 
being liable for something that you can be able to be proved directly as a harm as opposed to this analog act. But again, I, I don't think that they would say that there's any good answer aside from just striking this thing down entirely. Right. So last question, Richie and Galecki convicted as drug kingpins in Vegas. Where are they now and what are the prospects? So the prospects are not good, I have to say, for them. They are currently awaiting sentencing in Vegas. They have 20-year minimums each. And it's odd to say that the prospects aren't great for someone who just had their convictions overturned in one district. But just the way that this case is set up against them, you know, you really need to you need to win in all three districts to win. You know, as you know, uh, in a federal trial, you only need to get convicted on, you know, one count in one place to really go down for the whole thing. And so... We'll see what they're sentenced to in Vegas. There's going to be an appeal there, I'm sure, continuing this sort of musical chairs of trials and appeals. We'll see if they wind up getting tried again in Virginia, because now they could potentially face a third trial there. And that's still saying nothing of whatever might be waiting for them in Alabama after this is all over. So uh, the story is still being written. That's Jordan Rubin. He's a legal editor at Bloomberg Law. His two-part series, America's Secret Drug War, appeared on Bloomberg Law in August of 2019. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Jordan Rubin, thanks for being my guest here on Criminal Injustice. Thanks for having me. Let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. This edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from Bethesda Magazine and the ever-trusty ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Garland Montgomery Jarrett Sanderson of Silver Spring, Maryland. I think you'll agree that with that many names, we'll just call him Lawyer Sanderson. Lawyer Sanderson's problems with the State Bar of Maryland began in 2013 when he failed to show up for court in a case in which his client faced possible jail time. The judge filed a complaint, and Lawyer Sanderson was assigned another lawyer to monitor him to assure that he followed the rules and attended to the needs of his clients. It seems that the embarrassment of being assigned a professional babysitter wasn't enough to keep Lawyer Sanderson on the straight and narrow. Over the next several years, the bar received no fewer than four complaints against him. In one of those instances, Lawyer Sanderson settled a case for one of his clients for $6,900, but he failed to tell his client about it. Instead, he simply gave his client a check in the middle of the following year for $2,000. He gave his client another $2,000 check later that month, and then $2,900 at the end of the year. Failing to communicate with a client is itself an ethics offense, as is failing to properly notify a client of a settlement, as is failing to handle the client's money properly. Because of what happened next, one senses that perhaps Lawyer Sanderson was aware of this, that maybe he had the feeling that these ethics offenses were um, closing in on him somehow. He called the client and instructed her to lie to the disciplinary authorities of the bar if she was contacted by them to be a witness in his misconduct hearing. He even had her repeat his lying instructions back to him. Yes. All of this and more would have gotten the bar's attention, but the final straw seemed to be Lawyer Sanderson's conduct at a totally separate hearing for one of his clients. At the hearing, a social worker testified, and Lawyer Sanderson obviously did not like what the social worker had to say. After the hearing, Lawyer Sanderson approached the social worker and, in what was later characterized as a, quote, heated exchange, Lawyer Sanderson called the social worker, quote, a baby-snatching bitch, close quote. And yes, he did this in front of witnesses who later testified at his disciplinary hearing that, yes, he had indeed used the B-word. But for true chutzpah, Lawyer Sanderson's argument defending himself against this last charge is really a thing of beauty. 
even if he had used that word to describe the social worker, Moyer Sanderson said, he didn't mean anything bad or nasty by it. Just look at rap music, Lawyer Sanderson told the state's Court of Appeals, which in Maryland is the state's Supreme Court. According to Lawyer Sanderson, in rap music, one sees, quote, casual use of racial epithets. And these derogatory terms can actually imply, quote, a level of respect rather than disdain. That's right. Lawyer Sanderson thinks his courthouse name-calling puts him right up there with J.C. and Kanye and all the rest of those guys. Not surprisingly, the Court of Appeals, leaving us no word on whether the justices listen to or even like rap, rejected that argument. Lawyer Sanderson's exchange with the social worker, the court said, quote, in no way demonstrated any level of respect, close quote. Well, yes. Here's the other thing the Court of Appeals rejected. Lawyer Sanderson's argument that a six-month suspension from practice would be enough. Nope. Disbarred. Think that's appropriate? Well, I do, but I wonder, what would Kanye say? That wraps another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly and closes another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Review us on your favorite podcast app. It really does help people find us. Check out our website, www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris. I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice to become a member and access the premium content feed. The U.S. uses solitary confinement like no other country in the world, and nowhere more than at the Supermax prison in Colorado. Solitary confinement damages prisoners' minds. The U.N. has called it torture. So what happens when prisoners leave Supermax? From solitary to the street, that's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>